Well, good morning. If you're new to Grace Point Church this morning, welcome. If you haven't been here for a while and you're just now coming back, welcome back. We are right in the middle of a series to determine what our purpose in life is. It's entitled, What on Earth Are You Here For? And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at what those purposes are. The purpose of the first purpose we looked at was the purpose of being in fellowship with God, called worship. The second, last week we talked about that one of our purposes is to be in fellowship and community with each other. And today we're going to talk about that our purpose is to become like Jesus. Now, I don't think there's any more uniquely American holiday than Mother's Day. It's so American, in fact, that when I think of it, I think of apple pie and hot dogs and baseball. Okay, now I don't know if you've, you, you know how baseball works. They have this, this time-honored tradition of throwing a, a ceremonial first pitch after the, before the game starts. And you've probably seen it on TV where one person goes out to where the mound is and all the eyes are upon them and they, they wind up and they throw a pitch to the catcher, at least in theory, they throw a pitch to the catcher to start the game. Now, I was in India when the Major League Baseball, the current Major League Baseball season started, and so I didn't get to experience all the opening day hoopla and everything that goes on surrounding that. So when I got back, I did a search on the worst first pitches in history. And so here they are. Here's some of them. Why do we laugh at those? Is it, is it, is, I think part of it's because the throws are so stinking awful, right? I think part of it is because we're imagining that what if that was me out there in front of 30,000 people? They're kind of alone, probably pretty nervous. But I think part of it is because we're surprised that a grown person can't throw a baseball from here to there without bouncing it. But why do we have that expectation? See, it's because we expect people to get better at things as they get older. Now, do we hold that same paradigm spiritually? Do we expect that a Jesus follower will be like a child and eventually grow up? Do we have that expectation of them? Or is it okay for somebody that's following Jesus to be the same today as the day, as the day they met Jesus? What does God expect of people that claim to be his followers? The Apostle Peter actually helped us answer this question. Now, this is Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples, but at times he struggled to follow him. This was Peter who had a, had a meltdown because of a middle school girl and denied Christ. This was Peter, though, that walked on water when Jesus called him out of the boat. And Peter tells us what God expects of those that claim to follow him. It's God's desire that every believer grows up. Listen, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, says it like this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. Uh, when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, of course, Paul wasn't talking about physically growing up. He was talking about spiritually growing up. The message version of the Bible gives us a great word picture when it paraphrases Hebrews 6.1. It says, so come on, let's leave the preschool finger painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. Now, what might surprise you is that research shows 
that most of us really don't want to mature in our faith. Most of us really don't want to grow up. George Barna said, who does a lot of research, said this. He said, Americans are willing to expend some energy in religious activities such as attending church and reading the Bible, and they're willing to throw some money in the offering basket. Because of such activities, they convince themselves they are people of genuine faith. But when it comes to truly establishing their priorities and making a commitment to knowing and loving God and allowing Him to change their character and their lifestyle, eh, most people stop short. We want to be spiritual, and we want to have God's favor, but we're not sure we want Him taking control of our lives. And you might say, yeah, and really, what's the big deal? I mean, what difference does it make? Isn't the idea that I put my faith in Jesus and ask Him to forgive my sins, isn't that enough? Isn't that important? Isn't that the most important? Yes, it's the most important thing. But it's also important to grow up. Why? Why? What difference does that make? We learned on day four that we were created, God created us for eternity. And if you're only living for the present, you're not going to experience the full purpose of God's creation for you. The Bible teaches us that our, that our bodies are temporary, and we know that. But it also teaches us that our souls are eternal. And what we do while we live in our body has an effect on our eternity. Let me say that again. What we do while we live in our body has an effect on our eternity. Jesus told us, he said, set your affection on things above. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. He was saying, make your greatest investment in eternity. So what, if that's the case, then what's the purpose of our time here on earth? The reason we have this time on earth is an opportunity for us to become better acquainted, to understand God better, to understand his purposes, his ways, and his character. And when we come to know him better, then we'll become more like Christ. This isn't about becoming a Christian. Did you know that the, the word Christian only appears in the Bible seven times? But the word disciple occurs 296 times. See, Jesus called his followers to be a disciple. And they didn't throw that term around lightly. In biblical times, a disciple was one that was committed to following that leader, that rabbi, and emulating their life, and then passing on those teachings. But when it comes to becoming like Jesus, there are several myths that we have to overcome or we have to understand before we can go too far. And the first myth is that spiritual maturity is automatic once you become a believer. Spiritual maturity is automatic once you become a believer. You might go, nah, I don't believe that. Really? Because it sure looks like it. That when we look at our habits, we assume that if we come to church enough, that we'll grow up. Now, this is not a unique problem. Paul had the same issue in the first century. When he said, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Becoming like Jesus is not automatic. You can be a believer, a Jesus follower for 30 40, 
50 years and still be the same spiritually as the day you met him. Now, you might have more intellectual knowledge. You might know more Bible verses or remember more Bible stories. But the depth of your faith in God is no different today than it was when you met him. And maybe it's been a long time since you've had a personal experience with God. You hear people talking about knowing God's will, and you kind of wonder, what's that like? See, the truth is that growing spiritually is the result of the decisions that you make. Spiritual depth and spiritual maturity require commitment. Now, Jesus didn't sugarcoat what he expected of the people that claimed to be his followers. You can look all through Scripture, and you won't find one place where Jesus said it was okay to follow him in a passive or a lukewarm manner. In fact, he said just the opposite. Consider Luke 9, 23 and 24, where it says, And Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, some of you know that I used to be a marathon runner. And I have to use the past tense there because it's been at least 10 pounds and at least 15, 10, it's been 15 pounds in 10 years since I ran my last marathon. But there was an eight-year period of stretch of time where I finished 25 different marathons. Now, that seemed a lot more impressive before Oprah ran one, okay? <laughs> and, 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 but in case you're wondering, I am faster than Oprah. Okay, In fact, if you'd like, you can put that on my tombstone. He was faster than Oprah. But when I started running marathons, the reason I was attracted to marathons is because it required determination and commitment. I mean, anybody can buy a pair of shoes and show up at the start line of a marathon. But it doesn't take very long before you figure out who's put in the time, who's put in the effort, who's put in the training and because only those that have paid the price are really going to succeed. And so it was that determination and that commitment that draw, drew me to marathons. Now, my buddies and I, we were committed. We did speed work on the track. We ran hill repeats. We ran a 16-mile run every three weeks or so. Why? Because we wanted to be the best marathoners that we could be. Now, Jesus' disciples, they didn't probably understand everything that they were signing up for when they began to follow Jesus, but they were committed. Listen to what Paul says. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back. So let's keep focused on that goal, those of us who want everything that God has for us. And if any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. You'll see it yet. Where are you on your spiritual journey? Did you get to forgiveness and stop growing? Are you just counting on time alone to make you more mature? Because if you are, that's not the way it's going to happen. It's going to require some commitment and dedication on your part. The second myth is that spiritual growth is a personal matter. Now, in America, we look at it like this. Everybody does their own thing. You can worship God any way you want. In fact, you'll hear people saying that, that I can worship God alone. But the truth is that relationships are essential 
for spiritual growth. We've looked at this verse several times in the last two or three weeks, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. See, relationships are not optional for a disciple. They are fundamental for your spiritual growth. I'm going to tell you, if you're not in a body life group, or if you're not in a small group of people that that will hold you accountable and encourage you, if you're going to try to make it alone, let me tell you something. You will never be all that God intends you to be when you're running by yourself. You just won't. You have to have that encouragement and that accountability. Now, in every marathon that I ever ran, there was some point in which I wanted to quit. But I never did. Why? Because I had my buddies with me, and I didn't want to let them down. I thought, they may be feeling worse than me, but I am not going to quit. Let me tell you about the power of encouragement. Now, when you're, when you're running, when you're doing a lot of running, some days are good days and some days are bad days. And we were, I really had trouble figuring out which one was which sometimes beforehand. I mean, I never could figure out whether it was the weather or whether it was nutrition or the way I slept the night before or biorhythms or something else. But there are some days you just don't got it, right? And so the last marathon that I ran, I was preparing for that. It was going to be our last long run before, that mar- before the marathon. And I knew early on that this was not going to be one of my best days. In fact, at mile eight, I'm already going through the mental gymnastics of, let's see, how far am I from my car? If I take a shortcut across that parking lot, and then maybe I can get back to the car pretty quickly. And I knew this was not going to be good. So at mile 10, I told my buddies, I said, this isn't my day. You guys go ahead and and go ahead and leave me. Just leave me here to die, please. Just leave me. And they took off, except for one guy. Harold came back to me and he said, I'm not going to let you quit. I'll go with you. I said, Harold, I'm going slow. He goes, I'll go slow with you. I said, Harold, I might have to walk some. He goes, I'm going to walk with you. And so Harold came along beside me. And when I slowed down, he slowed down. When I ran faster, he ran faster. And occasionally he'd say, come on, pick it up. Let's go. Let's go. You can do it. And he carried the conversation for about an hour and a half talking about his family, talking about sports, talking about work, and talking about God and everything else, because I couldn't get a breath. He'd ask me a question, I'd just go, like that. So, but do you know that that day, Harold and I covered 22 and a half miles, and I was going to quit at mile 10. That's the power of encouragement, and that's why you need to be in a group that will encourage you. You know why I quit running marathons? Because I lost my support structure. One guy had to travel more than, and travel too much, and he couldn't keep up the same schedule of training. One guy got hurt, and he was out for several months. A third guy decided that he wanted to graduate to triathlons, and so his training schedule kind of kept him from running with me. And I held on for a few months, but it wasn't very long before I just kind of got tired of training by myself. So spiritual growth is, 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 a, is done best in a group with those around you that will encourage you and support you. Myth number three, spiritual maturity is mystical. You know, we think maybe it's, maybe it's reserved for those people that have gone to seminary or those people that are taking those high-level courses with words in books that I can't even understand. 
Here's the truth. The truth is that spiritual growth is very practical. We learned on day 12 that you're as close to God as you choose to be. Think about that. You're as close to God as you choose to be. Now, Paul frequently compared spiritual fitness to physical fitness. Listen to this. He said, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we, the Jesus followers, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. See, spiritual fitness requires us to develop spiritual disciplines until they become habits. And you might say, okay, well, what are these disciplines? All right, you ready? Here they go. It's going to be really complicated. Here we go. Read, pray, journal, obey. See if you can read that with me. Read, pray, journal, obey. See, it even has a little sing-song to it, so make it easy to remember. Read, pray, journal, obey. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but that's a pretty good start. But you might look at that and go, that's it? That's pretty basic. Yeah, well, so is drinking water when you're running a marathon, but somehow I missed that memo before my first marathon. I got out there, and I didn't know anything about nutrition. I didn't know anything about hydration. I didn't know anything about power bars and all that kind of stuff. I just ran, and I ran through the water stops. I wasn't going to slow down. I mean, that stuff slows you down, right? So I just kept on running. I got to the halfway mark, 13-mile mark, and I ran, and, and you should know that was the fastest half marathon that I ran in any of my marathons that I ever ran, was that first at 13. But then mile 14 came, and it felt the same physically as mile 13, but I looked at my watch, and I was about 20 seconds slower than the previous mile. You know, and so being the determined person I am, I said, all right, I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm going to make up that 20 seconds. So 50, mile 15, I concentrated, I worked harder, ran harder, and I got to my end of mile 15, I looked at it, and it was 20 seconds slower than mile 14. Mile 16 was slower than that. Mile 17 was slower than that. By mile 18, I was walking. What had happened? I had neglected the most basic element, water. See, there's a reason that the basics are the basics. You can't neglect the basics and live. And if you are trusting your relationship with Jesus to what you get in here in one hour on a Sunday morning, or an inspirational quip that you read on Facebook, or maybe the feeling that you get when you listen to a song on KLRC, can I tell you something? You're going to starve to death spiritually. You cannot neglect the basics. So let's get real practical. Let's talk about reading. Do you approach reading the Bible with anticipation? Or do you read the Bible kind of like a Christian horoscope where you're looking for an inspiring quote or some inspirational thing to get you through the day? What if you knew God was going to speak to you through his word? Would that make a difference? See, D.L. Moody says that the Bible wasn't given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. So here's my first practical thing for you is read the Bible specifically with a particular question that you have in mind. Now, that may be something that you're going through or a decision that you need to make, but you need to word it in a question, not in a general question that says, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Or what's your will with my life? But something very specific that says, God, should I take this job? Should I pursue this relationship? Should I go there? 
Should I stay here? Whatever that is, word it in very specific a question. Because, see, here's the problem. Most of us read the Bible too generally. And we get to the end of it and we go, I didn't get anything out of that. See, because we're not reading it with a focus. If you can word your situation in a question and then you read the Bible with specifically with that question in mind, you will be amazed at how God speaks directly to you. Now, God may not answer you immediately. Okay, my experience is that God had some work to do on me, on my character or on my relationship with him before he could begin working on that thing that I thought was so important. God would speak to me about my lack of patience or my selfishness. And then he did that to prepare me to hear from him about my situation. And if I'm not willing to receive what he's saying about this preparatory stage, then why should he tell me anything else? When you read your Bible, read it until God stops you. You realize that the chapters in the Bible weren't there when the guys wrote the Bible. All those that wrote the Bible, they didn't have chapters. The chapters were added for our benefit so we could find things easier. There's nothing magical or mystical or spiritual even about reading a chapter a day. My encouragement to you is to read until God stops you. If that's in verse 2, then that's where you park. You read with your question in mind, and when you will be amazed. Some stuff will just jump off the page at you. And that's where you stop. And so wherever God leads you to stop, that's where you stop. Secondly, read systematically. Don't just flip through the Bible like this and say, that's where I'm going to read today. Read systematically. And if you don't know where to start, start in John. And again, you don't have to read the whole first chapter of John to read. Just read where God tells you to and stop where God tells you to. As you read, answer these questions. And this will give you clarity in terms of what you're going through, in terms of how God's speaking to you. The first question is, what did God say to me? What did God say to me through this passage? And write that down. What did I say to God in response? And what am I going to do as a result of this? What did God say to me? What, what, what God say to me? What did I say to God? And what am I going to do as a result. And if you will read your Bible with that with questions in mind and you will answer those three questions, you will be amazed at the depth that God begins to speak to you in. Let's talk about prayer. Is your prayer life just a ritual? See, I fear that many of us view prayer as the opportunity to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. See, the reality though is that, God is the op- that the prayer is the opportunity for us to get in sync with God. For us to get in sync with how he would have us, how he wants to use us, where he would have us working. Now, I'm going to tell you how I pray, up to you whether you choose this or not. But when I start praying, I worship first. You might say, I don't know what worship looks like. Well, for me, what worship looks like is I complete this sentence, God, you are. And I will, I will say, God, you are holy, you are righteous, you are perfect, you are the creator, you are love, you are mercy, you are grace, you are the king of kings, you are shalom, you are peace, you are the El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. 
Why is that important? Because if I start with worship, that has a way of God-sizing my prayers. Suddenly, some of the things that I'm praying about, I realize God may have a different perspective on. So I start with worship. Secondly, is confession. Agree with God about what he tells you about yourself. It says in Scripture that God loves a pure heart. So my encouragement to you is to come clean. And if, you're, if you don't know what it is that's keeping you from growing or you don't know what's, what's keeping you from having a, a great relationship with God, I dare you, ask him. Because if you will ask him to reveal to you what's keeping you from being in perfect harmony with him, he'll tell you. And then you get to choose whether you're going to do anything about it or not. The third thing is petition. Now, this is where most of us start. And I don't know about you, you probably have a lot of people that you pray for, that people ask you to pray for them, family members and, and others that are going through a lot of different things. And the problem is, with most of us, we have so many things that if we were trying to pray for all of them every day, we'd just, we, 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 we just be there all day. And so I think most of us do what I call the F-16 flyover on our prayers. You know, you've seen it at the Super Bowl where they finish the national anthem and boom, there goes the jet. And we kind of treat our prayers like that. We go, God bless all the people all over the world all the time. And that's about the extent of our prayers if we're not careful. Can I tell you something? I don't pray for everybody every day. Let me show you my prayer list. On Mondays, I pray for the persecuted church, those committed followers of Jesus who are suffering for the gospel, whether they're in North Korea or China or India or Indonesia, Middle East, Africa, Philippines, that's where I pray because I, th I think that kind of sets the tone for my prayer life for this week. I also pray for Grace Point prayer requests that I'm aware of. And you can see the whole list. You can see that on different days I pray for Mali and I pray for India. I pray for Indonesia down the right-hand side. You can see my family members. The reason I do this is because it allows me to pray more in depth for those as opposed to doing the daily flyover thing. Now, you'll notice that I've got some white space in there, and that's deliberate because I don't want someone to come up to me and say on Tuesday and say, hey, listen, I've got something I need you to pray about. And I go, sorry, you're not up in the rotation until Monday. I hope you can hang on until then, and I'll get to you, right? So I've created the white space in there deliberately. Now, when you're praying, list your prayer requests specifically. Again, not, Lord, bless John, but Lord, help John understand how much you love him. Help John understand what he should do about this job or this situation or this relationship. Write your, write your prayer request down very specifically, because that's the way you'll know when they're answered. If you, just, if you have a very general prayer request, guess what? You'll never know whether it's answered or not. It's bless John. How do I know when, John, when God's finished blessing John? I, I have no idea. And then record the answers that when they happen. So here's what I've discovered. If you keep track of your prayer requests and you record the answers and you go back a couple of months later and you go look at them, you'll be amazed at the number of times that God has answered prayer. And when I look at my list, I've got to come to the conclusion that either God is a prayer-answering God or there's just a whole lot of coincidences going on in my life. 
The third pillar is that of journaling. Record what God's saying to you. I've already given you a couple of questions to ask. Record what God's saying to you. You might go, journal? Why do I need to journal? And I know how this works. The women write two pages and the guys write two sentences. That's okay. I'm the same way, okay? But why do we have to journal? The reason is because we forget. God speaks to us, and as incredible as it sounds, we forget because we don't write it down. When you're going through a season of your life where it's particularly difficult and you want to hear from God, take good notes. Because, because in a few months, you'll want to look back on there and see what God taught you. And if you don't write it down, I promise you that you will forget it. The fourth thing is to obey. Now, this is really the linchpin because the first three are worthless if you don't do what God tells you to do. See, James had an interesting perspective on this. He said, don't just listen to the word. You fool yourselves if you do that. You must do what it says. Suppose you listen to the word, but don't do what it says. Well, then you're like a man who looks at his face in the mirror, and after looking at himself, he leaves, and right away he forgets what he looks like. Now, how many of you looked in the mirror before you left home this morning? Maybe more of us need to. Okay, but imagine that you looked in the mirror and you saw toothpaste on your chin or you saw some mascara that was smeared and you did nothing about it. You wouldn't do that, would you? Well, James is saying that that's what happens when we read Scripture. God's Word reveals something to us about us and we walk away without doing anything. Can I tell you, it's those things that you refuse to change that will keep you from becoming like Jesus. It's those things that you refuse to change that will keep you from becoming like Jesus. Henry Blackaby said, your, your life is the sum of your responses to God. When God speaks to you, what you do next reveals what you believe about Him. If we love God... We will obey what he's telling us to do. Now, how many of you are familiar with fantasy sports? There's some people that don't want to admit it. Okay, I understand. I are one. Okay? For those of you that couldn't raise your hand or you don't know what I'm talking about, listen, there is a whole subculture going on around you that you know nothing about. Okay? There are people that have teams and leagues, and the whole essence of this is that people get together and they choose players off professional teams, and then these players accumulate points based on their performance in the games. And then we compare my points to your points and we see who wins. Sounds kind of silly, isn't it? Well, maybe it is, but there's 32 million Americans that play fantasy sports. And it's about a $15 billion industry. But there's a major difference between fantasy sports and real sports. Now, I know, this is going to sound obvious. It's going to shock you, I know. But the fantasy sports are not, those players are not playing the real game. They're not the ones playing the game. They have no influence over anything, but they act like they do. A quarterback throws a touchdown pass and they cheer as if they had something to do with it. These folks even give each other trophies at the end of the season. See? Now, this, how appropriate. He's got a helmet on sitting in a lazy boy. That is the perfect metaphor. See, because these people feel like they have an affinity with those that are playing in the game, but they're really just watching from the lazy boy. And here's the sad part. 
They take credit for it as if they had something to do with it. See, I fear that we are a generation of fantasy Christians. We're perfectly satisfied to let somebody else worship and serve. We're willing to let somebody else go around the world sharing the gospel. We're willing to just stand on the sidelines and watch other people and cheer them on. And we feel like we're in the game, but we're not. We're not. The ancient Greeks and Romans, now, those are guys that loved real sports. You've seen Gladiator and some of those. They liked real sports, and they built arenas for Olympic-style competitions. Now, in their world, the purpose of athletics was not just for the benefit of the spectators, and it wasn't just to find out who was the fastest or who was the strongest. In their world, the purpose of sport, one of the purposes of sport was to declare the power of their great gods, Apollo, Athena, Zeus, and all those. They, they, wanted to, they used sport to declare the power of their gods and how great they were. And when the emperor, or when the Caesar, became, he began to be viewed as God, he used these games to declare that he was God. And that everybody should worship him. And so in a sense, the athletes competed. The reason for their competition was to show the glory of their God, the emperor. In the same way, I believe that a true disciple of Jesus is a runner. Someone who's called to run, to declare to the world with the way they live their life that Jesus Christ is King and Lord. Hebrews says it like this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen to Paul. I fought the good fight. See, that conjures up an image of an arena. I finished the race. That, that's Olympic language. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, you see the athletic imagery, which the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have longed for his appearing. I've had the opportunity to go around the world and talk with folks that have uh, suffered for being a committed follower of Jesus. I've talked to men that have been beaten simply because they were committed to following Jesus. I've talked to people that have lost their homes, lost their possessions, lost their jobs because they were committed Jesus followers. I've talked to some that have been disowned by their families because they were following Jesus. How dare we dabble at being a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do we dare treat this run after Jesus like a part-time stroll in the park? I don't want to get to the end of my race and have the Lord of my games look at me and say, what you got left? And I have to tell him, I didn't give it my all. I want to finish my race and cross the line and say, I have nothing left. Because running after Jesus it's worth everything. Why would I settle for anything less? So run. 
Run. Run. I don't know where this finds you this morning. You may be there thinking, you know, I was, there was a time when I was more passionate about my walk with Jesus than I am now. And I know that Jesus didn't move away from me. I moved away from him. And I got distracted. I got busy. I got lazy, whatever it is. But I know that God's calling me to run after him. So I'm going to ask you to do something. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do something very bold. I'm going to ask you to stand up because I want to pray for you. I don't want you to do this if you don't mean it. This is between you and God. Don't give in to peer pressure. But if you want to run after God, maybe like you've never run before, I'm going to ask you to stand up so I can pray for you. I'm just going to wait a couple minutes, a couple seconds. You say, I've let it slip away. There was a time when I was more passionate about Jesus than I am now. And here in front of my church family and in front of God, I'm going to covenant to run after him. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for the boldness and the courage that you've given these people, Lord. I pray that you would come around them and surround them with your love. I pray that you will become more real to them in the next few days than maybe you've ever been, Father. I thank you for their commitment to say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to become like Jesus. So, Father, I pray your grace and your mercy and your love over them. And I pray that you would give them your courage, Lord, and your strength. For it's in your Son's name, amen and amen. And there may be some of you, I know in a crowd this size, there's probably some of you that would say, I, I've never, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never followed Jesus. I don't even know what that's about. I have some questions, or maybe you say, I'm just not in that place right now. I'm going to be down here at the front. And if you'd like me to pray for you or talk with you about a decision that you're trying to make, Wade's going to be over here on this side. Caleb's going to be down here, I believe then I'm going to ask you to just come forward. Do something bold. Jesus said, if you deny me before my, my, if you deny me on earth, I'm going to deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. So it's your choice. I'm going to ask you to do what God's telling you to do. Just be obedient. 